So, once upon a time, all books and scrolls and parchments were written or copied by hand. And then things began to change. Printing was invented, right? And a sacred text became the first book ever printed. What book was that? No! Gotcha! Right. Wasn't Gutenberg and his famous Bible. We have to go back 600 more years and all the way around the world to China to get to the first printed book. It's called the Dunhuang Diamond Sutra. Okay? Dunhuang is a city on the edge of the Gobi Desert. And it has this series of caves containing over a thousand years of Buddhist art. It's still the greatest treasure trove of Buddhist art in the world. And in 1900, a Taoist monk was working his way through priceless manuscripts in one of those caves when he came upon the Diamond Sutra. And it changed our understanding of, his, of printing in the process, that history of printing, right? So in that moment, what we thought we knew changed. The past was rewritten, right? Now, not the events of the past. Those remain in their state of stasis, secured in their place in time. But our perception of the past is what changed. And really, that's all that ever exists in the present, right, is our perception of the past. So with this discovery, our collective memory was altered. And once again, we were faced with this shifting ground of what we call history, really with the unknowing that stands at the center of all of our knowing. So we build our world on thoughts of things known, but our knowledge and even our history is subject to change. It's a basic tenet of science that everything be held lightly, that even the most rock solid of understandings can be upended, right? What's accepted as fact today might be overturned tomorrow by new breakthroughs. So where we imagine a world of stability, knowing who we are and what the world is around us, there's actually fluidity. And for every bit of what we know, there's so much more unknown that stands behind or within it. When we allow ourselves to recognize and live within this unknowing, we acknowledge that our conception of something is not the same as its reality. We are creatures of memory. Almost every thought we have about ourselves is based on something done or experienced in our past. So a simple thing like me knowing that my name is Cynthia, right, is based on the memory of someone telling me at some point in the past that my name is Cynthia. I know how to drive a car because I have a memory of having done it before and someone teaching me how to do it. Our whole sense of identity and personality are in, in effect collections of memories about ourselves 
and mem memories about the world around us. Memory is the basis of our relationships, too. When I have a conversation with my son, our previous interactions are built into that conversation. Our memories of each other form a shared past that are in everything about how we relate to each other in the present. And that's true of all relationships, right? But as soon as we recognize memory as the center point of identity, relationship, connection, belief, we hit a snag. Because we know that memory is perception. That people remember the same events in different ways. Sometimes in tiny details, sometimes in really big things, right? So let's take SpongeBob, for instance. Because, you know, I just don't think that he who lives in a pineapple under the sea gets enough time in sermons. <laughs> so the other day, my son was talking about one of the characters in SpongeBob. My son's 19. And he says, you know, but you wouldn't know about that because you never let me watch him when I was a little kid. Now, my mouth just dropped. And I was like, hundreds. We watched hundreds of episodes of SpongeBob when you were a kid. I mean, I had this running through my head on end when he was little, right? Now, it wasn't that I was not ever known to ban certain television shows from our household. Like, I'm looking at you, creepy purple dinosaur Barney. Um, but in this case, my son's memory and mine just we're never going to match up on that, right? And the thing is, there's no way for us to travel into the past to find out who's right. I have my memory, he has his memory. But when two people's memories differ, there's more going on than just a he said or she said. What we see is that memory is not a completely reliable narrator. There's unknowing mixed in even with our knowing. And if we're honest, we can't with great certainty put everything we would like into that fully known category. We just have to accept that unreliability. So we live lives full of not knowing, but we rarely stop to honor this. We blow right past it and imagine that our perceptions of the world are the same thing as what the world is. We do this with our history, with our relationships, with our understandings in general, until something comes along that causes us to question what we think it is that we know, to reevaluate what we take for granted. And suddenly we realize we've been living in just perception all along. So maybe we're in a relationship with a romantic partner and we think everything is going great. And then one day our partner turns to us and says, I can't do this anymore. I feel like you don't know me at all. And then begins to enumerate all the ways they think the relationship is falling apart, right? Suddenly, our understanding of that relationship collapses, and we realize we've been living in a mental construct. Guess what? The other person's living in a mental construct, too. 
but a different one. Or maybe we're people of a certain race and living in a society that privileges that race. We may have no perception of that privilege unless something happens that causes us to recognize that we are living in a social construct of our collective making. In both of these scenarios, we live inside these constructs that form our vision and keep us in a space of not knowing about what's outside of it. And in both of these cases, and just myriad others, the not knowing hiding just beneath the surface holds more truth and wisdom than that to which we cling. But it's incredibly hard to open to that not knowing unless something just throws us for a loop and knocks us out of the known that we're used to standing upon. It takes courage, courage to step into not knowing. But stepping into not knowing is, is, is exactly what spiritual, gui ugh, spiritual guides across many traditions have called us to do for millennia. Wisdom texts have long told us of the value of turning toward the not knowing instead of away from it, of recognizing our ego projections as the shells of instability that they are and consequently, of allowing ourselves to remain in a state of openness and wonder, humility and awe before other humans, before life, and before the divine. So there's a famous medieval Christian mystical text called The Cloud of Unknowing. And in it, the author encourages the student to recognize that all the attributes the student has thought about God, like that God is good or just or merciful, those are ideas that have to be laid aside if the student really wants to know God. The author writes, but I tell you that everything you dwell upon during this work of contemplation becomes an obstacle to union with God. For if your mind is cluttered with these concerns, there is no room for him. So the true aspirant has to move beyond these ideas, beyond considering God in light of good or evil or anything else that can be captured in concepts. The aspirant has to enter into unknowing, and only then may they truly glimpse even a little bit of what the divine truly is. The Diamond Sutra, the one that was found in those caves, right, speaks about this as well. The full name of the sutra is the diamond that cuts through illusion. And it starts with a core Buddhist understanding of Maya, that everything that exists lacks substantiality or an essential nature. And that includes our personalities and our very selves. Meditation on this sutra, this diamond, is supposed to cut through our illusion that what we call I, the ego, is a real substantial thing so that we can begin to see that it's only a collection of perceptions and memories. 
The sutra seeks to cut away any certainties to which we cling. It says, therefore, anyone who seeks a total enlightenment should discard not only all conceptions of their own selfhood, of other selves, or of a universal self, but they should also discard all notions of the non-existence of such concepts. So discard the idea of the selfhood's existence and also discard the idea of its non-existence. Then you may be onto something. The sutra's trying to get us out of our linear, binary thinking, right? The idea that if X is true, then Y must be false. That kind of thinking allows us to stay inside our little perception bubble. But the sutra forces us to ask, what if X and Y are just irrelevant, right? What if the whole question has no meaning? What does that do to my system as a whole? Suddenly, everything's up for grabs, and we're smack dab in the middle of not knowing. In her history of Zen called The Circle of the Way, Barbara O'Brien writes, most schools of Buddhism have some sort of mediated or incremental system that will, if faithfully practiced, open the student to her or his genuine insight. These systems usually involve learning doctrines that provide provisional or approximate stand-in for insight until the real thing comes along. So, you know, I get a little bit of this and I stand here. Eventually, I'll get to the real thing. And we see this put into action in another sacred text called the Lotus Sutra, one of my favorites. It's one of the most influential texts in Mahayana Buddhism. And this sutra is filled with parables that illustrate the use of expedient means. And these are actions guided by wisdom and compassion that in a particular situation can help lead someone to enlightenment. So one of these parables is known as the parable of the imaginary city. And in it, a guide leads travelers who are in search of great treasure. And after a long while of searching, the travelers are tired and disheartened and they want to turn back, right? But the guide, the guide points them to a city that's just ahead. And so the travelers keep going and they go into the city and once they have rested their weary feet and filled their empty bellies, all of a sudden the city around them disappears. They're astonished and they all look at the guide and the guide says, yeah, I made this imaginary city appear here just so you wouldn't give up the search, right? Because the treasure that you're seeking is really near. So you could say that these travelers just got tricked. You could say that they were given an approximate stand-in for insight until the real thing came along, right? Or you could say that the travelers were living in the midst of needful not knowing. Over and over, we see these calls to strip away the blinders that seem like sight, to go past boundaries that don't actually hold us in any real place, to recognize that the gate is gateless, and to see that the answer isn't A or B, but rather that the question is pointless. Over and over, we're asked 
to step willingly and joyfully into a cloud of unknowing. Okay, so what do we do with all this idea of unknowing in the middle of the information age, right? A world where knowledge is available at our fingertips, data is hurled at us faster than we can take it in, right? And in the midst of all of this knowledge and data, we already know to be weary and wary that fake news and alternative facts could be hiding behind any click. So in this deluge, I offer four lessons to be learned from and about not knowing. One, hold knowledge about the world lightly. We know that there's a lot of confusion and chaos and that things change rapidly and that it's, it's comforting to settle in behind the seeming solidity of this being right and that being wrong. Acknowledging unknowing forces us to stay within the really uncomfortable place of making allowance that we don't know everything, that there's more going on than meets the eye, and that we may ultimately be wrong about things. Number two. Hold knowledge about the people around you lightly. Relationships are often the most grounding elements of our lives and just as often open an abyss below us when a loved one dies, a partner leaves, or there's some other form of trouble or trauma that affect that bond. As much as we may love or as long as we may be with others, we never know the world through another person's eyes. And we should always have the humility to remember that. And this goes double for those who are not our loved ones and for people we don't even know. And those whose worldviews strongly differ from ours. Rather than thinking we know what others want and what drives them, we need to step out in the knowing and listen even when we don't like what we hear. Number three, hold knowledge about yourself lightly. You are both more and less than you think you are. A less solid ego and more confluence of idea and memory. Less unchanging and more able to accept and embrace all that you currently fear. It is unknowing that allows you to create, to discover, and to be open to the new. And number four, hold knowledge about the divine lightly. Human belief cannot create a divine, nor can human belief disintegrate a divine. In other words, the human mind is not the arbiter of all that exists in the universe. Accepting unknowing means giving up the certainty of duality and moving into a simple experience of awe at what is unknown. So I'll leave you with this quotation from Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman. I think it's much more interesting to live not knowing than to have answers which might be wrong. 
I have approximate answers and possible beliefs and different degrees of uncertainty about different things, but I'm not absolutely sure of anything. Namaste and amen.